You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. Welcome to our special Living for the Bond series. Now, even though I love movies of all types from all different eras, my overall favorite film franchise is the James Bond series, which technically started in 1962 with the release of Dr. No, which starred Sean Connery and was directed by Terrence Young. This franchise has now endured for over almost six decades. And over the next two months, I'll be revisiting one entry starring a different Bond every two weeks, leading up to the upcoming U.S. release of the 25th official installment of this franchise, No Time to Die, which is coming out on October 8th, I hope. We are here to discuss For Your Eyes Only, which came out in 1981 and was directed by John Glenn. The Chinese have a saying, before setting out on revenge, you first dig two graves. I'll go back and wait, but not for long. It won't be, I swear. It stars Roger Moore, Carol Bouquet, Topol, Julian Glover, Lynn Holly Johnson, Desmond Llewellyn, and Cassandra Harris. The genre would, of course, be spy action thriller. Happy 40th anniversary to the very first Bond film, which I saw in theaters when I was six years old. And one of the best, starring the late, great Sir Roger Moore. He was my Bond growing up. Though over time, I probably love each of them just for different reasons. Even Timothy Dalton. This one featured 007 in a more grounded setting and story following the insanity of the previous Bond film, which was Moonraker, and had come out a couple years prior. And just for context, Moonraker was the film when we saw James Bond go into space. I'm not making that up. (laughs) And to call it completely grounded would be an overstatement, because there's still plenty of ridiculousness, despite Bond never entering space this time around. And to start, there's that cold open. It features Blofeld, you know, the the arch-villain, the head of Spectre. But of course, it's not actually Blofeld, because at the time, when this came out in 1981, there was ongoing litigation over the character rights with other producers who had done other Bond films. So they had basically someone who looked and sounded like Blofeld, but they couldn't actually refer to him as Blofeld or refer to anything his character did in previous movies. This scene kicks off with kind of a sobering moment where we see Bond visiting the grave of his late wife, Tracy who he got married to several movies prior and was shot right after the wedding. It's a very tragic ending. It was actually the ending of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. But here's the thing. It's a good moment. It's a good callback. But the person behind her murder, guess who he was? It was Blofeld. But because of the rights issues, they can't actually refer to this character as Blofeld or anything he's done. So basically, you have two things referencing the same movie, the same character, but they can't acknowledge each other, if that makes sense. So after he visits this grave, he's called to a helicopter to take him back to headquarters. And who's flying that helicopter remotely but Blofeld? But it's not Blofeld. So this person laughs at him, and the whole scene is basically played for laughs. Bond isn't angry at this character. He's just dismissing it because he's just going to kill Blofeld. And then basically it all climaxes with the fake Blofeld desperately offering him a delicatessen in stainless steel, 
while he's hanging off the helicopter before Bond drops him into a smokestack. Yes, just describing that <laughs> makes it very clear that this is kind of this is not really an auspicious start for this movie, but thankfully it does get better. Oh, well, you could still tell that the folks at Eon, which is the production company behind Bond, and director John Glenn, they were still really trying to tell a more serious story involving espionage this time around, and for the most part, they succeed. The story involves the mysterious assassinations of several British operatives, all to put in play a British encryption device called the ATEC, which is purely a MacGuffin. And just, just to reiterate things, a MacGuffin is basically a device of mystery that drives the plot of a movie. So that's your MacGuffin, the ATAC. But that's cool. It gives our hero the chance to traverse to various gorgeous locations around Europe, chasing after mysterious arms dealers, countesses, East German biathlon champions, often resulting in some genuinely inventive action set pieces, including two of my personal favorites in the Bond franchise. One of them is that there's an extended ski jump bobsled chase around Cortina, Italy, which is genuinely impressive, especially the more you think about it. You have a motorcycle chasing a man on skis, chasing behind a bobsled, all on the same bobsled track. And then there's the pretty tense climax at the end of the film, which involves Bond trying to stealthily climb up to a mountaintop where a villain has a hideout. Now, no, Moore was never one to do his own stunts, and that's pretty obvious in some shots, but it's still impressive stuff to watch. And that said, this might be Moore's most well-rounded performance as Bond. He's sharp, ruthless when necessary, intuitive, and still plenty charming whenever he needs to be. Roger Moore was 53 at the time of filming, but still really looking good, and up to the task of playing a convincing super spy. In retrospect, this probably should have been his last Bond role, as that would really not hold true for his next two films, Octopussy and A View to a Kill. But regardless, it goes without saying that Roger Moore remains the most charming and certainly the funniest Bond, and more often than not, he's in on the joke. In a rare demonstration of this franchise allowing 007 some actual sexual restraint, he maturely rejects the aggressive advances of a late teen figure skater named Bibi. And then as they both prepare to leave his hotel room, where she snuck in, he drolly remarks, Yes, well, you get your clothes on. I'll buy you an ice cream. Two other highlights of the film are the fantastic title theme song, which is one of the best, sung by Sheena Easton, who even appears during the opening credit sequences, looking lovely, singing it all seemingly while underwater. And then there's Topol. Now, by this time, Topol was an Oscar-nominated actor. He was the star of Fiddler on the Roof. But this was also just six months after he devoured the scenery, playing Dr. Zarkov in Flash Gordon, which was one of my favorite films from that era, and still remains so. And this time around in Four Your Eyes Only, we see him devouring just as much scenery as Columbo, the shifty and smooth Greek smuggler who ends up on the other end of Bond's mission to secure the ATAC. Columbo is definitely one of those cool side-boss characters who I really would have liked actually seeing reappear in future Bond films. But alas, he never returned. Still, nobody could crack open and chew pistachios like Topol. I smuggle, yes, I smuggle gold, diamond, cigarettes, pistachio nuts, but no heroin. 
40 years later, despite several parts of this film becoming laughingly dated, like the technology, and the less said about it, the better. This 3D visual identigraph is still in the experimental stage. This is still upper-tier Bond, and it's a delightfully entertaining rewatch. And that brings us to the categories. And for the Living for the Bond series, we will have one additional category just for Bond films. And this category would be the best Bond bit. Look, this series has so many elements which carry over from installment to installment. Bond fans know what I'm talking about. You have the opening credit sequence. You have the Bond girls. You have the henchmen. You have the villain's lair. You got the gadgets. You have the cold open. You have the final fight. All these little things that we all dissect and we rank about which Bond film has the best this and the best that. So this award goes to the one thing that stands out the most for this particular entry in the Bond franchise. And for me, the best Bond bit, the one aspect which has always made this film quite special in Bond canon is that mountain climbing climax. Now, as opposed to your typical climax, for most Bond films, there's no massive explosions. There's really not much even in the way of gunfire either. It's mainly just watching Bond, played by Roger Moore, by himself fighting the elements, working his way up that sharp cliff. There's minimal score, and it's played really nicely for suspense. And as one particularly nasty goon from up top tries to sabotage his climb, we even get to watch 007 figure his way out of danger, but not with the help of a trusted gadget from Q Branch, but with his own ingenuity, mainly his shoelaces. And that brings me to the next category, and that would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. Sheena Easton's titular theme song remains one of the best and lays out a breezy, elegant vibe playing over the title sequence, which mostly takes place underwater. It's just a gorgeous ballad, and it really stands out among many other Bond themes, even many other bond theme ballads, and that it never really gets particularly brassy, nor do you ever hear violins. It's just not as bombastic as your typical Bond theme, like other ones from Carly Simon or Shirley Bassey, which is not to say I don't love those songs, because I do. It's just kind of soothing, but not in an easy listening way that would put you to sleep. And what helps even more is that this remains the only opening credit sequence in the history of the franchise, which features the actual performer of the song shown in the credits. And Easton just looks great as we see a visage of her face singing amidst all the imagery floating underwater. It's just a great tone setter for the rest of the movie. And that brings me to the next category, which would be Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Now, continuing with the music discussion, Bill Conti did the score for this film, along with producing the lovely title theme, which, to his credit, we hear the melody from that theme throughout the score. And here's the thing. I love Bill Conti. He has done so many memorable scores, especially around this time period, including rousing music for the first three Rocky films, The Karate Kid, and probably my personal favorite score of his for a film, which actually came out the same summer as this one, called Victory. It's about soccer. 
Now, notice that all the films I just mentioned, they're all inspirational sports films. And there's the rub. For Your Eyes Only is not a sports drama. And Conti was unfortunately just a poor choice to score a relatively ground-level, moody espionage thriller. Just the wrong kind of sound. This score often veers too much into disco or just really generic-sounding 80s corporate background music. But to dismiss the score as just being too dated, that's not the main issue here. Because just a few years prior, Marvin Hamlish, the late great Marvin Hamlish, incorporated a lot of disco into his lovely score for The Spy Who Loved Me. But at the time, it just felt more organic and it fit the tone of the movie. But not this time with Conti, as the music is just often distracting, especially, unfortunately, during that one ski chase sequence about halfway through. Bill Conti was just a poor match to score a Bond film. And fortunately, John Barry, who was the most prolific of all Bond composers, he did return for the next film. That brings me to the next category, which would be the trailer moment. This is the scener moment that best describes this movie. Now, Sir Roger Moore was always known as the most feat and the least threatening James Bond, or at least that's how he played him. And the character, as written by Ian Fleming and played by other actors, including Timothy Dalton and Daniel Craig, and even to a lot of extent by Sean Connery, he was always much more ruthless and brutal. But periodically, though, we would see Moore play this side of the character as well. And that happens in what I would consider the signature moment of this film. One henchman for the main villain is named Leopold Locke. He's a creepy European assassin wearing octagonal glasses who has been shadowing Bond during much of his mission. At one point, Locke actually murdered one of Bond's contacts in Cortina, Italy. The contact was named Ferrara, and he was found in his car with his neck sliced open, with a small pin sticking out, brandishing a dove. Of course, by this point, we have already been told that Locke is secretly known as the Dove. That's his alias. And later on, when Bond, along with Columbo, they raid a smuggler's compound, Locke is there. He and other goons shoot at them immediately, and then they escape. Bond sees Locke drive away to a nearby mountain path, but he's able to cut him off by running up the stairs to another part of the road, right near a cliff where he gets the drop on Locke. Bond stands in the middle of the road. It's a pretty cool, iconic image. You see Roger Moore just standing, you know, pointing his gun. He shoots right into Locke's windshield, causing him to veer off the road to the edge of a cliff overlooking a rocky beach. Now, half of Locke's car is hanging over the cliff. And as he's struggling to figure out what to do, guess who walks up? It's Bond. He walks up to him and he tosses the dove pin into Locke's lap and then proceeds to kick the car, which is probably already pretty wobbly. The car falls off the cliff, and Locke perishes to his death. It's a cold-blooded moment, well played by Moore, and it's really nicely shot for a dramatic effect. You left this with Ferrara, I believe. Head for heights. 
And that brings me to the final category, and that would be MVP, the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Of course, it's Sir Roger Moore. He pretty much owned the character at this point. Even though the writing was on the wall, pun intended, that's a Bond theme, that it was soon going to be time to recast Bond. In fact, I think by this time, Sam Neill was auditioning for the part, James Brolin. There was even some talk about Pierce Brosnan, but this was the early 80s. It was still going to be a few more years. But this was his fifth time playing the character, and he was clearly in a groove. He never loses his signature charm, despite keeping a pretty keen focus on the plot, which does get a bit convoluted at times. Beyond that, Moore has always been a generous actor, and that certainly shows, as Topol and Carol Bouquet, they have their moments to shine as well. Of all the Bond films starring Roger Moore, this is probably my second favorite after The Spy Who Loved Me. Roger Moore sadly left us in 2017 at the age of 89. But the mark he left on this character is undeniable, and he will always hold a special place for me as my first Bond. Oh, by the way, we haven't been properly introduced, Melina. My name is Bond. James Bond. My overall rating for this film would be three and a half stars out of five. I like this film. It's one of my favorite Bonds. It's definitely in the top half, and it's one of my favorites starring Roger Moore. I would highly recommend it. If you want to find For Your Eyes Only, it's available to rent or buy on all streaming platforms. And that ends another clandestine review. Please subscribe to the Living for the Cinema podcast. Follow and like us on Facebook and Instagram. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.